today. I'm going to get right into the word. I feel like the Lord has given me a word for the church today. And uh, it's going to, as Pastor Dan said, it's going to encourage you, but it's also going to challenge you because uh, I think we need to be challenged as a church in the season we're living in. And uh, so I'm going to read to you out of Romans 13. And in this chapter, the Apostle Paul is, uh, beginning of the chapter, he's talking about how we're supposed to love our neighbor and what that looks like and, and that we should let the debt of love always be outstanding. We would always be trying to uh, pay that debt of love to each other. And, and, uh, and that leads me into my verse, which is verse 11, which is my text verse. In fact, I'm going to have you stand, if you would, please, just in honor of reading the word this morning. Because the word is worth standing for it. So let me read Romans 13, 11. He says, do this. He's talking about loving each other. Understanding the present time. The hour has come. Everyone say, the hour has come. For you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. He, this is a message to believers. This is a message to the church. It is time for us as followers of Jesus to wake up from our slumber. The church has been a sleeping giant for way, way too long. And in this season that we are in, we need the church to stand up more than it ever has. Ever. And so the title of my message today is called A Wake Up Call. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we love you. Thank you for this wonderful group of people that are here today and everyone watching online that's, that's hearing this message, God. I pray that you would do your work in our hearts. Lord, we know that we need you, but God, we need you even more than we know we need you. So I pray that you would do your work in our hearts, that our hearts would be good soil today, that we would receive your word, that we would always be looking to draw closer to you. And God, I pray that my words would be your words and that you would seal this work by your Holy Spirit in our hearts today. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. Well, you can be seated this morning. So wake-up call. Have you ever you heard the story about the guy that uh, checked into a hotel and uh, after he got up to his room, he remembered he needed a wake-up call. So he called back down to the front desk and he told the teller, hey, I need a, a wake-up call. And the teller said, okay, well, uh, from what I can remember of you, you probably need a new barber and your breath stinks. <laughs> That's not the kind of wake-up call he was looking for, but uh, nevertheless, that was a wake-up call. I think he wanted the phone call one where it wakes you out of your perfectly good sleep and, and uh, scares the bejesus out of you, right? In fact, you know, the nature of a wake-up call is unpleasant, right? Because you don't need a wake-up call if you're on vacation, staying in a hotel, and you can just sleep till you can't sleep no more. You need a wake-up call when you need something to... Uh, take you from the position your body wants to be in, which is sleeping, to take you to a place where your body needs to be, which is to get up and get ready because you need to go to a meeting or to work or catch a flight or something. And so the very nature of the wake-up call is not pleasant, but it is very, very necessary, isn't it? Because it does alert us to what we are in need of. In fact, the uh, definition of a wake-up call is something that causes someone to become fully alert to an unsatisfactory situation and to take action to remedy it. That's a great definition. And that is a great word for the church today. That we need to be taken, we need to recognize this unsatisfactory situation that we're in and take action to remedy it. We as followers of Jesus need a wake-up call. And I believe this word today is for the church. I believe the Lord put it in my heart that it is for us, it's for me, and it's for you. And this verse that I read is not just some verse for the first century church. It's not some verse for uh, the church a thousand years ago or 500 years ago or yesterday. It's the, church for, it's the word for today. 
for our church and for the church today. You know, we are in a season unlike any other. There is no doubt about that, is there? It is an incredible season that we are in. And I've, I've, I've only been here 46 years. I know people that have been here a lot longer than me, but they say the same thing. It, this, is, this is unprecedented what we're dealing with. When you talk about the, the virus, the social unrest, everything that goes with all of that that's happening all at the same time, it's pretty incredible. And one thing I know is that the Lord is in all of this. And I want to say it again. I really believe from the bottom of my heart that the Lord is in this season. Now, whether or not he started it or whether or not he's perpetuating it is irrelevant. Okay, we don't need to get into all that. The fact of the matter is it's here, which means he allowed it. Because, you know, Psalm 24 tells us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything in this earth is the Lord's. So nothing happens in this world without God's permission. Nothing. So God is allowing this and he's allowing it to perpetuate during these last four months and who knows how much longer. And I believe that there is a purpose and a plan in all of it. And I believe it is a shaking of the church because we can't, we can't possibly understand what he's doing in the entire world. But we understand the church because that's what we're part of, right? And I can tell you that God is shaking the church. And he is doing it intentionally. And you might say, well, how do you know that that's what's happening? I know because I can tell you that for a long time, I have had a grieving in my heart over the state of the church. Because I feel like we have worked too hard to make ourselves too comfortable. And we're not as much about doing the work of the Lord. And I can tell you today without a question that God's goal, that his purpose in our life is that we glorify his son. That is his purpose. You want to know God's will for your life? God's will for your life is that you would glorify Jesus, period. The rest of the stuff is all semantics. He wants us to glorify Jesus. And I don't believe the American church especially has been doing a good enough job of glorifying Jesus. We've been working too hard about being comfortable and making things kind of cute and neat. And God's shaking us up. And he's saying, this is no longer going to cut the mustard, as they say. Because he wants his church to be a passionate church that's, that is changing and affecting our society, not becoming more like it. And what's happened is we're becoming more like it. And so this is a wake-up call for us, church. And you're here today, and it's not by coincidence. And if you're listening online, it is not by coincidence. The Lord wants you to hear this word. These are not my words. These are the words of the Lord. Because I'm going to read a verse here that I believe gives us a mandate for what God is expecting from his children. And those children, that's us, of what he is expecting from each and every one of us. But before I read that verse, I just want to challenge you this morning that we need to be careful not to get into that mindset of just trying to hang on until everything can go back to normal. Because I think we all struggle with that sometimes. I have struggled with that plenty of just thinking, okay, God, I'm just going to hang on, and you're going to make this all go away, and then everything's going to be great, and everything's going to go back to normal, and the church is going to be full of people, and it's going to be wonderful. And the Lord has completely convicted my heart of that. Because let me tell you something, the normal church is one of the reasons we're in the situation we're in. This, I know this is a hard word, church, and I don't mean to beat us up. But I'm telling you, the, God does not want the normal church anymore. He wants people that are passionate for him, that are not okay with being comfortable, not okay with living a faith that doesn't cost us anything. He wants a church that's passionate for him. And I just grieve over the fact that we have gotten away from that and that, we, that the society is pulling us so hard in their direction 
that we've had to make accommodations at times to try to appease society. And, and, and God's saying, this is our chance. This is our chance to let him shake us and do what he wants to do in each one of our lives. You know, I, I, get, I think we get stuck sometimes in the thinking of, we just want it to be, if, if, if revival can come through this, like we want revival from what's happening, and who doesn't? But we, we can get fixated on thinking if revival could come, then maybe it'd be easier to be a Christian. You know, maybe, maybe people would be more open to hearing our message, or people would come to church more, and it would just be this, we could become more of a, a God-centered society like we were in the past. Well, I, I personally feel that that's not anything that's on the horizon anytime soon. In fact, I feel like it's going to actually become harder and harder to be a Christian. And I don't think I'm making that up. I think when Jesus talked about the end times, you all agree we're in the end times. I mean, no matter when you think Jesus is coming back, the end times started when Jesus ascended back into heaven. So we are in the end times. Whether he comes back tomorrow or 100 years from now, we're in the end times. Jesus gave us lots and lots of words about the end times and how it's going to look. And in Matthew 24, he specifically tells us, in verses 12 and 13, these are the words of Jesus. He says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Anybody feel like wickedness is increasing? Anybody feel like love is growing cold? Is love maybe even growing cold in the church? I feel like it is. I feel like I know if you did a poll of every person that calls themselves a Christian in the United States, if they were honest, well over half of them, probably three-quarters of them, would say they have never shared their faith with another person. What is more loving than to give this great gift that we got from God to somebody else? But yeah, we don't do it because our love has grown cold. We want people to get saved, and we rejoice when they do, but to really sacrifice our life in a way that we're gonna make sure that my life counts for something other than just me getting through this life. The love is growing cold. And Jesus is warning us of that. He says that those who stand firm to the end will be saved. And this is a wake up call for us. The fact that there are, they're saying, and I've said this a couple weeks ago, but there are statistics saying that as many as a third to 40% of the church is not coming back. Even once we have a vaccine and everything's back to normal, because a lot of people have just been disenfranchised and they, they were coming to church for maybe the wrong reasons. And so they don't feel the need to come back now because they've been so long without having to come to appease their guilt. That's telling me the love is growing cold. And God is not okay with that. So I wanna give you this, this verse that is a wake-up call to each and every one of us today. And I'm gonna kind of go through it and dissect it. It's in Hebrews 12. You know the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 is a great hall of faith where the writer of Hebrews tells us all the people that had this great faith in God. And he follows that up with, verse, with chapter 12. I'm going to read the first three verses. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, these are the people that he just mentioned in the previous chapter, because of that, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Some versions say focus on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our great faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men 
so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There is three mandates in this passage that I'd like to go through today. The first one is to throw off. He says, throw off those things that hinder us. That tells me the implication here is that this race we're running, this life of faith that we're living, that there are things that try to get in the way of us running that, that race, right? That's not news to anybody. We all know <laughs> two minutes after you get saved, you start feeling those things that are hindering you from living that life that Jesus would want you to live for him. So it tells me there are hindrances. And, and it's interesting here because he also mentions sins that easily entangle us. So there's things that are hindrances in this life that aren't necessarily sin. So we have to be mindful of even those things that would keep us from serving Jesus and living this life of faith the way he would call us to live it. And it's not just sins, it's also hindrances, things that get in the way. But one of the biggest things this tells me when we're talking about uh, throwing off, this tells me that there is a standard for living that God has for us that we don't really talk about a whole lot in church. There's a standard of holiness that God wants us to live. And I, I, the thing is with holiness is we've kind of, in the church, we've kind of gotten away from, from doing a lot of teaching on holiness. I don't know how many sermons you guys watch during the week or if you watch some of these mega church pastors and some of these great communicators and, uh, some of the, with some of these big churches and some of them that I really, really love. I think they're doing a phenomenal work. But you won't hear a lot of preaching on holiness. You know why? Because holiness isn't real popular. Because for so long, the church was known as this dogmatic group of people that just browbeat everybody and said, you know, the Bible says that you need to live this way. You know, you need to do this and this and this and don't do this and this and this. And we always preached on holiness. We always preached on living up to this standard that God has for us. And, and people would feel bad about themselves because they knew they could never live up to it. So people left the church. And then the church finally realized, okay, well, if we're going to keep people in the church, we got to also talk about grace too. And so the pendulum went from over here and swung all the way over here. Now everything is about grace to the point that like people that write books about God's grace and about everything is just about love, that those books are bestsellers because that's what people want to hear. They want to feel like, oh, I'm okay. God's just going to forgive me for everything. And I can just kind of do my thing and God loves me. And so it's all good. And we've got out of balance over here on this side. But when reality, we need to come to the center because in the life of a Christian, there is a place for holiness and grace. They both belong in the life of a follower of Jesus. And so it's okay to say that there is a standard of holiness that we are called to live to. The, the error that we make so oftentimes from the preaching from the pulpit is that we just harp on the, the holiness and the standard and people know they can't do it. But I'm gonna finish up here today explaining how we can do it. It's not just about gritting your teeth and determining in your mind you're just going to do it right and making sure you have the right accountability and you do all the right things because we all know we are fleshly and we will fail. So it's not about not having shortcomings, but it is about throwing off those things that hinder us. We throw them off. We, don't, we reject them. When we have shortcomings in our life, we don't, we don't just gently lay them aside and, and keep them there and kind of just keep our back to it, hoping we don't go back to it. We don't have a moment of weakness going back to it. Because that's what we do sometimes, isn't it? Like, eh, no, I shouldn't do this, but I'm not going to totally get rid of it because, you know, you just never know. When in reality, throwing off, some versions say cast off. That, that implies to me you put it in a rocket ship and you launch it to the moon so you couldn't have it again if you wanted to. Right? Throwing off those things that hinder us. And see, here's the thing, church. When we're talking about throwing off the, the, the things that hinder us and the sin that easily entangles us, we don't like to talk about sin either. 
Sin's not fun to talk about in the church. And there's a, there's a bit of a deception out there that repentance for a Christian is a one-time thing. That when we get saved, we repent and we go our, the other way and we're good. But in reality, that's not what repentance is at all. Repentance is a, it's a lifestyle that we as followers of Jesus need to live. First John, when John wrote First John, that was written to Christians. And he said very clearly in First John 1, 9, he says, if we confess our sins and we repent of those sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's for us. So we can't be deceived in thinking that sin's not a big deal, that I don't need to repent because the grace of God where we swung way over here, it just covers all of it. As Christians, if you haven't repented or asked God's forgiveness in six months or a year or whatever, you're missing it because God's always convicting us. But what we do, we don't feel beat up. We don't, you know, smack our head against the wall talking about how stupid we are. We do what 1 John 1 9 tells us. We confess it and we trust that he is faithful and just to forgive us. Because in that same book, in chapter 3, let me read this, 1 John 3, 6. He says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. This is for Christians. So he said, there's a lot of people that think they're saved that really aren't. Because if you keep sinning and there's no conviction in your heart, you don't know him. We as followers of Jesus need to be repenting of our sin. We need to be recognizing our sin, asking God to forgive us, and to give us the ability to turn away from it. Repent means to literally turn and go the opposite direction. And that's what God, his heart for each one of us. But this is, again, isn't something that's talked about a lot on Sundays because it's not popular. But I'm here to tell you today, I am not trying to win a popularity contest. I wasn't that popular in high school, so I'm good with not being popular today. <laughs> I am called as the pastor of this church to help lead us in the paths of righteousness, the, the way that Jesus would call us to live our lives. That's what he wants for each and every one of us. The, when, when, the, um, when this pandemic first started, it's been over four months now. I don't know about you guys, but the verse I was hearing from everybody in ministry, it seemed like, because everybody's wanting to find answers as to how we can get through this and get it over with. The verse I was hearing constantly was 2 Chronicles 7.14, and I'm sure you heard it. It's a beautiful, beautiful verse. I believe in it wholeheartedly. But we can so often look at the end of this passage and forget the beginning. I'm going to read it for you. This is the words of God. This is God speaking. He says, if my people, that's us, church. That's us. Now watch this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves... And, and pray and seek my face. Humble ourselves. It's so easy to look at everybody else and say, man, I wish these people would get their act together so God could get us through this pandemic. He's saying humble yourself. We need to be looking at ourselves. And pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. That is repentance. And I know as Christians, we try to think, well, I'm not wicked. I'm a Christian. Any sin in our life is wicked. The Bible says that our righteous acts are as filthy, uh, as filthy rags to him. There's no righteousness in us except for Jesus. So when there's sin in us, it is wickedness. He says, turn from our wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. That's the part we like. But we've got to do the first part too. That's a message for the church. We need to wake up to sin and its effects in our lives. Sin has crept into the church. It has crept into those of us in the church, 
and we have overlooked it. I don't believe we've necessarily embraced it, but we've overlooked it and not wanted to deal with it because we've had other influences that have helped us. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, he said one time, he said, you know, if, if your life is like you in a boat and sin is the water, you know, if you're on a lake or in the ocean, there's water all around. And if that's sin, okay, the sin, the water can't do anything to you or hurt the boat until it gets in the boat. Once it gets in the boat, what happens? You get enough of it, it sinks. So as long as we keep the water outside of the boat, we're okay. But if we let that water get in the boat, eventually it will sink us. And that's what sin does if we're not careful. And you know, there are some sins that we've just allowed in the church that we just don't deal with much for whatever reason. Whether it's greed or selfishness or jealousy. Man, how many, how many times do we as Christians struggle with being jealous of somebody else because of something they have? That's a sin, church. Gossip. Man, gossip's almost encouraged in some churches. We had disguised it as a prayer request, right? Gossip is huge. It is a sin that needs to be purged out of our life. Of course, we all like getting information about somebody else because it makes us feel better about ourselves. But it doesn't make it okay. Anxiety, worry, fear, these are, th- these are sins in our life that we just kind of, eh, it's just kind of something I deal with, you know? One of the best ways to get delivered from some of these things is to ask God to forgive you and repent of it. Don't, don't just kind of hope it maybe stays behind one day and you can leave it. Like, deal with it aggressively. The Bible tells us to deal with our sin aggressively. I mean, I, I think about the, the TV stuff, the stuff on TV that we watch with all this streaming. It's so easy to watch anything you want now. And we watch TV shows that have no business coming into our home. We're letting society affect us instead of us rejecting the things that society would try to push on us. And with, with music, with young people, I know the young people, I wish you were all sitting right here. They're all over the place today. We told them they couldn't sit together because they're spreading the virus. <laughs> But young people, like, what's in your playlist? If you've got songs that have explicit lyrics in your playlist, there is no place for that in the follower of Jesus. No place. It's a sin. And we just kind of overlook it because that's what all my friends are doing. And it's not that big a deal. We've got to purge the sin out of our lives, church. We've got to purge it out of our life. And I, I want to be clear, this is not some moralistic sermon where I'm just telling us we've got to live a different way. I'm, I'm going to show us how we, can, how we can be empowered to live that way with our life. The second one... The second mandate we get in this verse is to run. He says to run the race with perseverance. Don't walk, run. Walking's easy. Anybody can go out for a walk. Running is difficult. And not only that, this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. So a marathon's the most difficult kind of running because it requires a lot of perseverance. You don't need to persevere at a sprint. With a sprint, you put your head down, you run as hard as you can for 10 seconds, and you're done. A marathon takes a lot of perseverance. There's a lot of times in a marathon where you want to give up and just say, man, I'm done. I can't finish this. And God knows we feel that way in our Christian life sometimes. He knows we feel like we're alone and we just want to give up. And he's saying, persevere. You're not alone. You're absolutely not alone. Running requires sacrifice. To live the life of faith and run the race that God has called us to live, it requires sacrifice. You cannot have everything the world has and follow Jesus. Can't do it. We can't live our life and just bring Jesus along with us and him, him kind of be our buddy, kind of be our co-pilot. I remember that bumper sticker said, God is my co-pilot. I mean, that is so scripturally wrong, it's, it's unbelievable. I know the heart behind it was good, but 
God's not a co-pilot. <laughs> if he comes in, if you're really living this life the way he wants you to live it, he's taking over. He's saying, God, this is yours. You're, you're in the back seat letting him lead the way. And he's the one in charge. It requires sacrifice for us, and it has to cost us something. It really should cost us everything. But God in his grace and mercy allows us to have some of those things. But really, the idea, the heart behind a follower of Jesus should be that my life costs me everything when I give my life to Jesus. He says, take up your cross and follow me. It's a symbol of death. You're dying to yourself if you're going to live a life for Jesus. And there's no other way to do it. The Western gospel, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but the Western gospel has, has created this atmosphere where we're trying to make everybody as comfortable as we can in the Christian faith. And when in reality, we're doing ourselves a disservice. We won't get as many people to come to church or get saved if we, if we say the truth, but the truth needs to be said. And if you're going to come to this altar and you're going to pray a prayer and you're going to give your heart to Jesus, it means that his, your life is his now. You don't get to make your own choices anymore. You run everything through him and you let him lead the way. I love King David's heart. And I, I know I reference it all the time, but there's so many references in the word that show that why God honored him so much because his heart was so for God. So there's a, there's a, a chapter in 2 Samuel 24 where David had sinned and there came a time where he wanted to go make a sacrifice to God. And he needed an altar to go and make this burnt offering sacrifice. And so he went to this guy's place. His name was Arona, I think is Arona is how you pronounce it. And he said, hey, I'd like to uh, buy your threshing floor because I want to build an altar and make a sacrifice. And this guy Arona was like, oh my gosh, this is the king. <laughs> the king of Israel is in my home. He said, king, you can do whatever you want. Go ahead, make your sacrifice, do anything. I'm just honored that you would choose to do it here. That's so wonderful. He says, you don't have to pay me anything. Watch David's response to him in verse 24. It says, but the king replied to Arana, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. That is the heart that God wants for us. That we would not try to see how much we can get by with or how much we can get away with or how little we can give to him and still be a Christian and get to go to heaven when we die. But to have the heart of a King David saying, I will not live this life that costs me nothing. I won't do it. He was the king. He could have done whatever he wanted. And he said, absolutely not. Because I will not offer a sacrifice to my God that costs me nothing. He's looking for hearts that are not only willing to sacrifice, but that actually refuse to live this life without sacrifice. Not just willing, but insistent that we sacrifice for him. Now, you know, when we talk about running the race, there's, a, there's some similarities between the spiritual run of the race and the physical run, right? Let me, let me give you some of the contrast because the physical race, you know, if you're running, you're, you stay in your lane and you try to stay away from everybody, keep your nose clean, keep your head down and you go and you try to get to the finish line all by yourself as the first one across and that's how you win. Well, that's not how you win the spiritual race, is it? We're not designed to run the race in that way. In fact, there's an illustration, there's a video that I found that we're going to play it now. It's about a minute long that kind of illustrates the spiritual race that we're to run. This hill taking a toll on a couple runners trying to finish those final 20 yards. Wow. Yeah, you can see. What, what a tremendous show of sportsmanship as you've got an athlete who can't quite make it and they've got a team 
a, a girl from another team trying to help her to the finish line so she can finish the race. That's what, now that's what the sport is all well. about. Oh my goodness. This is just incredible. The sportsmanship, phenomenal as you see those final yards there. As you see Clemson and Louisville helping the Boston College runner, that's Tate and Pease. And the Boston College runner can't even lift her legs right now. She'll try to cross the finish line. What a shot right here at Wakeman Soccer Park in Cary. But you sacrifice your own position wow. to help another athlete finish what they started. And that, that's a true sportsmanship. Amen. Amen. That video has millions of views. And I love what the guy said at the end. They were sacrificing their own position. These were, these were different teams. They weren't even the same team. And these were ACC girls, guys. That was a joke. We're SEC country, so some of you may not have got that. <laughs> these are ACC people. <laughs> Thank you. But, you know, that is how we are to run our spiritual race. We don't have rivals in this spiritual race. There are no rivals. And we're not designed to finish this, this race, cross this finish line alone. If we cross this finish line alone, we have fallen short. Because that's not the plan. That is not the plan at all for us. It should be a driving force in our life that we would want to bring people with us. This is all about evangelism, church. This is all about sharing our faith and not just, being, not just sitting around hoping that people get saved, but being determined we're going to do something to make a difference. We're going to give up our position to make sure that I'm not coming across this finish line by myself. Because we have no rivals. You know, uh, about, I don't remember how long ago it was, 12 years probably, uh, a few of us from the church here went to Malawi, which is a country in Southeast Africa, uh, for one of Christopher Allen's crusades. Christopher Allen is an evangelist that uh, lives in Pennsylvania but travels to Africa and sees hundreds of thousands of people saved in his crusades. It's an unbelievable experience. And so some of us went one time to help him. We helped pray. We helped set up just to be there to be a blessing, part of his team. And uh, one day we were there setting up. It was an outside uh, crusade. And uh, at some point during the day, um, all these kids started gathering around us. They just probably saw pasty white people and wanted to see if we functioned the same way they did, you know. And uh, so the kids were all around. We were actually having a good time. They were always very, very friendly. And uh, lots of kids everywhere, you know, very poor country. And at, at noon, one of the guys from Christopher's team brought uh, the few of us, they brought us a box lunch to eat. Or it wasn't box, it was actually a plate with like rice and some chicken and, you know, nothing fancy but just some food. And uh, so the, the few of us there, we sat down to start eating. And also we noticed the demeanor of all these kids changed all of a sudden. They were joyful and happy and running around. All of a sudden they stood there and right in front of us and just watched us. And I remember looking at these kids and going, uh. And so I asked the guy that brought us our food, I said, are these kids hungry? And he said, uh, probably a good bit of them are, yes. I said, well, can I, can I give them my food? I said, I'm, <laughs> I'm more than happy to, I, I can afford to miss a few meals, if you know what I mean. And uh, I said, I'll give them my food. And all the guys with me were like, oh yeah, absolutely, let's give them our food. And the, the guy from the team, he was actually a, a Malawian, and he said, no, you can't do that. Because there's too many kids here, and there's not enough for all of them. And he said, it will literally incite violence and a riot with all these kids. He said, you can't do it. And he said, I understand your heart. This guy was a Christian too. And he said, but the best thing you can do is sit down and eat your food real quick and get back to work. So that's what we did. And let me tell you, 
was the hardest meal I've ever eaten in my life. Because those kids just, I mean, it just, you'd have to be the most callous human to not let that break your heart. But there was nothing we could do. Nothing we could do in that moment. And I think so oftentimes, we as a church, that we live like that. Like we have this incredible spiritual food that we're eating. And there's people that are staring at us, starving, needing it. And we just, we're content to eat our spiritual food. And just kind of hope that, you know, I hope they find a meal somewhere. God bless them, pray for them that they find a meal. But our spiritual food, you know, there's plenty of it to go around. There's never not enough of the spiritual food. Yet I feel like the, the church has gotten to where we are somewhat content. It doesn't break our heart that there are so many people that do not know or have experienced the love of Jesus. And it has to break our heart, church. It has to break our heart. And if it's not, we got to repent. Because it is not about us finishing this race. It is about taking people with us. That is the design of our life. That is, the way, that is why God even put us here. And this thing this, this mindset, this concept that our faith is this private thing that we just, is very dear to us. I've heard that so many times, not in this church, but I've heard it so many times that people are like, oh, my faith is, it's a very private thing to me between me and God. And I'm like, that is from the pit of hell. There's not one ounce of truth in that. Where does it say in the Bible that our faith is our own, that we're not supposed to share it? Jesus' last words literally were, go, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. His command to us was, that's why he gave us his spirit, was so that we could go, so that we could share him with everybody. The Apostle Paul, his opening chapter in his letter to the Romans, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power unto salvation for those who believe. We cannot be ashamed of this gospel. We just can't, and we can't not care about people. If the Spirit of God is in us, we care about people. And we care about the fact that there are people out there. And I know some of you are looking at me going, well, what about those that don't want to hear it? There's so many, the society doesn't want to hear it anymore. They're, they're done with church. That is a lie too. Of course, there are some people that don't want to hear it. But a lot of people want to hear it. Jesus said the harvest is ripe. It is plentiful. He just needs laborers to go do it. And we all have that ability. We all have that love that's in us. It's not about beating somebody over, your, over their head with your Bible. It's about loving them. And sharing the love of Jesus, sharing your testimony. Like, can I just tell you what Jesus has done in my life? How I was before I met Jesus and how I am now. And what he's done. That's what God wants for each of us. Now, will you get rejected sometimes? Absolutely. And nobody likes rejection. Nobody. I've never heard of a guy, I never had a friend that asked a girl out and she rejected him and said no. And later he's like, guys, you got to hear this. This is so cool. I asked this girl out and she rejected me. No one likes rejection. But I also know that that is not a valid excuse when I stand before my heavenly father. And he says, why didn't you share my son? And I said, well, God, I was, tired. I was scared I was going to get rejected. I think he'd look at me and say, well, let me t- I can tell you about rejection. I was rejected. And when they reject your story, your, your faith, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting him. Just like they did when they said we wanted a king. And they were tired of having judges. And Samuel went to God and said, God, they're rejecting me. He said, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. We have to be okay with being rejected. That can't be something that just keeps us from doing anything and saying, well, you know what? I'm just going to hope for the best. I'm going to pray. Hope they come to church. We have a story to tell. We have a testimony that people need to hear. You know, the mission of this church, 
The mission of this organization of New Hope, a mission for any organization answers the question, why? Why are we doing it? Where are we going? Why are we doing what we're doing? The mission of this church, I'm going to go ahead and put it up there, guys. This is the mission of New Hope, to reach those far from God and to lead people to their next step in a God-first life. It's two-pronged. That, is, that answers the question why we're doing what we're doing, why we're having church. Everything that we do at New Hope, if it doesn't answer that, or if that doesn't answer it, we don't do it. Because that's what matters to us. And it's two-pronged. You see, it talks about reaching those far from God. That means reaching people that don't know Jesus and leading people to their next step in a God-first life. That's for the believers. So the, the, the ones that already know Jesus, our goal for you is to lead you to your next step in a God-first life. But the, the first part of this mission talks about those far from God, and that is very intentional because the number one priority of this church, of my heart, Joy's heart, and our staff, is that we would reach those far from God. That has to be, and if you read that and you think, eh, that's cool, but it doesn't really stir anything in you, then we need to go to God. We need to say, God, you need to break my heart for the things that break yours. People far from God is what breaks God's heart. And if we're not passionate about that, we are missing the mark. We are going to finish this race. We're going to cross that finish line all by ourselves, And it's going to be lonely because that is not God's plan for us. We have to be about the lost. We have to be about our father's business. Now, I am not trying to get you to feel bad. I'm not trying to get you to feel guilty. This is not about, like I said earlier, not about buckling down and trying to figure out how we can be better Christians. It is about a mandate that God has given us. And the only way that we're going to throw off those things that hinder us and run the race with perseverance the way God has called us to do it is by this third mandate. And the third mandate is focus. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Focus on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. This is the answer, church. This is where we get sidetracked all the time. As human beings, we just get sidetracked. It's just the nature of it. I've said it before. I've had moments where God was so, so powerful in my life where I actually was getting, I was actually scared because I felt the presence of God so strong and saying to myself, I will never, ever doubt again. I'm going to live the rest of my life every second of every day for you. And within a week, I'm venturing over here trying to figure out my own thing. That's just the human nature. So we always have to be reminded fix our eyes on him focus on him because where you look matters where you look matters i remember years ago pastor bowen sharing a message and this one line of this message just hit me like a ton of bricks and i have thought about it and remembered it very clearly he talked he was talking about where you look and and focusing and having perspective he said you know if you're driving down the road in your car and you start looking over something catches your eye over here and you start looking over what happens if you look there long enough you know what happens you start drifting that way. If you look over here, you start drifting that way. No matter how hard you try to keep it straight, you just can't help yourself. It's just something about it makes you drift that way because where we look is where we go. So where you look matters. Your vision determines a lot of where you go. Hand-eye coordination is all about vision. You know, I played baseball growing up. That was my sport. I was, I was actually pretty good at it. I enjoyed it. I played it into high school and and I loved it and uh, wasn't tall enough or had a strong enough arm to make it in college, so here I am. <laughs> but uh, I was a pretty good hitter. You know, I, I had a, just had a natural knack for, for hitting the ball. But you know what? Anytime I was in a slump, any, any coach I ever had, any coach that was worth his salt, first thing they would ask you, 
Are you watching the ball hit the bat? Are you watching it all the way in? Or are you starting to look up because you want to see how far you just hit it? And you end up missing it or fouling it off or doing something, popping it up. They would say, my coaches would say, when, you, when that ball comes in, you should be able to see the word on that ball, whether it's Wilson or Spalding or whatever it is, you should be able to see it as it hits the bat and then goes out. That's the first thing you do when you get into a hitting slump. Are you watching the ball? Same thing in life. It matters where we look. Where you look is where your focus is. And I know you believe me because I can tell you, I don't know if you want to annoy somebody when they're trying to talk to you and they want your attention, talk to them like this. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I get that. Ooh, they did that. That's terrible. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, we can do that. Uh-huh. How annoying is that? We all do it. Got these stinking computers in our pocket now, so it's hard to not have it in our hand when we're talking to somebody. But what you want, if you really want to know somebody's paying attention to you and listening to you, you want what? Eye contact. That's the first rule. You want to impress somebody in an interview, in, in a meeting, anything that has to do with person-to-person contact, rule number one, eye contact. Because it lets the person know, okay, you're, you're, I got you. You're zoned in on me. Same thing in life. Where we look absolutely matters. And I would ask you today, where are you looking? Where are you looking? If we want to live this life, we want to have the power that we need in this life to live the way God has called us to live, to live up to the standard he has called us to live, the only way to do it is to have our eyes fixed on him. Because as we focus on him, those distractions go out of focus. Wherever you're focused, the human eye, as beautiful as it is, can only focus on one thing at a time. And wherever you're focused, the other things are are out of focus. And they become less noticeable. And God would say, if you will fix your eyes on me, if you will focus on me, he goes on to say, the author and perfecter of your faith. He's perfecting your faith. As you fix your eyes on him, they, they go hand in hand. There's a formula here that we can get where we can get victory in our life in a lot of ways without having to just try to figure it out. But we're so fixed on him. If we're focused on him, that's our part. And if we focus on him, he helps us in the rest. He helps us to throw off those things that hinder us. He helps us to run that race. He helps us to love people. He helps us. He breaks our heart for things that break his. He puts his desires in our heart. And we live in a way with a power that comes through only the Holy Spirit in us. But that power is only engaged in us as we are fixed on him. It's not a power we get where we can just do our thing and be distracted and God's just going to forcefully steer us in the direction he, want, he wants. The focus has got to be on him. Jesus is at the finish line. That's where we need to keep our eyes fixed. On him. And why on God's green earth we would ever look anywhere else, I'll never know. I ask myself that question all the time. Like, why do I get distracted so often when I know how good God is? I know what he's done in my life and I know that he has moved mountains and he's going to do it again, but yet, man, I can get fixated on other things so easily. And God would say, just look back to me. That's the beauty of God. That's the beauty of Jesus. It's not like if you look away, you don't get another chance. He's the God of second and 5,000th chances. We just have to continue to look back and focus our attention on him. The end of that verse, it says, consider him who endured the cross. Consider him. This is the answer to beating sin in our life. Now, are we ever going to get total victory and never sin again? Absolutely not. Not until we're in heaven. And I look forward to that day. 
But we can live victoriously over sin to where we're, we're so sensitive to when we allow those, those things in our life that hinder us that we're quick to repent, that we're quick to turn away from it, we're quick to deal with it. We don't embrace it. We don't condone it or put up with it. It's about considering him. It is about loving Jesus more than we love our sin. It's about loving Jesus more than we love that thing that may not be a sin, but it's hindering us. It's about loving Jesus more than we love our life. Loving Jesus more than we love our comfort, more than we love our safety, more than we love anything in our own life. If we would love him more, if we will focus on him and love him more, he will give us victory over the others. But we have to do the work of loving him. And that's his call to each and every one of us. That is his wake-up call to us, is that we would love him more, that we would refocus on him. I believe that's what he's doing in the church today, church. He's shaking us. Let's get out of the mindset of just trying to get through this and get back to normal. Let's, let's refuse to accept normal. We want a new normal, a new normal with a powerful church where people are getting saved, people are getting delivered and set free and filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're, we're a, a monster that's just going around loving people so much that they can't deny that there is a God who loves them. Amen? Will you stand with me this morning as I close? I'm going to pray for us. Don't sleep through your alarm, church. Don't sleep through the alarm. This is a wake-up call. I would just encourage you this, this afternoon as I pray, just to search your heart. Let's just take a minute and search our own hearts and ask God, what is in me that has caused me to maybe not focus on you, has distracted me, or has, what sins, are there sins in my life that I've allowed to come in and have their way and not dealt with them aggressively like I should have? Just take a moment there. I just ask you to close your eyes. We pray, just search your heart. Lord Jesus, would you search our hearts today? God, we open the doors of our hearts to you. There is no area of my heart that you're not welcome. There's no area. Lord, would you just reveal to us your heart? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God, I thank you today that you are so loving, so merciful, so gracious. Help us to receive that love today. God, we just come to you today. We give ourselves to you, Lord. God, we refuse to strive to make ourselves comfortable. Lord, we refuse to live a life of faith that doesn't cost us anything or that even just costs us a little. Your sacrifice for us cost you everything. God, help us to give you our lives, every aspect of our lives, Lord. And God, if there is sin in our hearts, Lord, if anything that I, was, that I mentioned today or maybe something I didn't even mention, if there's sin in there, God, help us to deal with it. Lord, we know all we have to do is confess our sins and you are faithful and just to forgive us. 
I just encourage you today, church, right where you are, if there's any sin in your heart, you don't have to say it out loud or raise your hand, just deal with it. Just deal with it. Don't take it home with you today. Leave it here. We repent of our sin, God. We repent. Lord, we want to see you raise up your church to do what you've called us to do. God, that we would throw off everything that hinders, that we would run this race with perseverance, and that we would keep our eyes fixed on you. Shake us, Lord. We thank you for shaking us, Lord, because we know shaking is a good thing. Shaking is trying to remove the dead things so that life can, can form and bloom in us. We want to have fruit in our lives that shows your spirit having its way in our lives. We surrender ourselves to you, God. I just encourage you today, if you're comfortable, just lift your hands. Let's just lift our hands and worship him. God, we surrender ourselves to you. We want to glorify your son. Our life is not to glorify ourselves, it's to glorify you. Let our lives bring you praise. Let our lives draw people to you. Lord, break our hearts for the things that break yours. God, let us help us not be okay with the fact that, that there are so many people around us, even in our own lives, that we know that are so far from you. God, please let that not, let it break our hearts to where we're willing to do something. We're willing to be rejected to share your love. Give us your heart, God. Give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you. We give you all the glory, Lord Jesus. All the glory, Lord. Thank you for being merciful to us through this season, through this pandemic. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. Thank you so, so much that we can trust you and know that you are in this, that you're working. We surrender ourselves and submit ourselves to the work that you want to do in our lives. And it's for your glory, Lord. And we ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen.